We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 148 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's the 22nd of May, 2018. With me, as usual, the 12th man, Paul. How are you, Paul? I'm good, Trevor. How are you? I'm good. And we have a special guest, um, the Rational Razor, Hugh Harris himself, has joined us in Scott's absence. Welcome aboard, Hugh. (laughs) Thank you. Good to be here. So, uh, so dear listener, we're going to rattle through our usual potpourri of different topics related to religion, politics, social movements, things going on in the world, and see where we end up. So... First cab off the rank is the... Uh, we mentioned a few weeks ago that there was this uh, lawyer, Luke Beck, who is a constitutional... Oh, he's an associate professor of constitutional law at Monash University, specialising in religious freedom and separation of religion and government issues. And he came out with an article in the Sydney Morning Herald saying that the chaplaincy program can basically be challenged on the basis that it's contrary to the anti-discrimination laws in the various states. And what we've got are schools employing people to be chaplains with a requirement that they are religious and that requirement of religiosity is unnecessary because they're not allowed to proselytise so it's it's not a, a feature of their employment that is, is is required as part of their employment. Therefore, it's an unfair discrimination according to various state acts. And if somebody pulls their finger out and and runs a test case, then the chaplaincy program will be done and dusted. Wouldn't that be nice? So, Hugh, importantly for you, the Rational Society and Meredith Doig heard about this and she's contacted Luke and had a chat over a cup of coffee and whatnot and and she's decided to run with this and she's found somebody. Yeah, found somebody. We're running a challenge, so it'll be interesting to see how it goes and what, what happens, what mm. comes out of it. I also read, um, uh, and, and I think it was a press release from the president of the New South Wales Teachers Union who mentioned that over $1 billion had been spent on chaplaincy since 2006. That's about right. I found yeah. a staggering, a staggering amount of money. Yeah. And just just to think of how many counsellors and trained social workers could be in schools if that money was spent differently. Mm. Well, the other thing about this is that the bulk of that money doesn't actually go to the chaplain themselves. It goes to in most cases, Scripture Union, um, who then carve off a small bit for the chaplain. So we did a graph on this ages ago when I was a member of the Secular Party and posted it on the Facebook page, a little pie chart showing how much... And I think it was like $34 went to Scripture Union and $16 found its way to the chaplain. So of that billion dollars that you're talking about, most of that, two-thirds, would have gone to 
scripture union and similar organisations rather than the actual chaplains, which oh. just makes it even more depressing. It you. does. It's, you're, you're making me angry. <laughs> They're not <laughs> well paid. They're not well no. paid. No. I uh, had the experience of sharing a staff room with a chaplain when I was a high school teacher some years back, and um, I recall him talking about how much he got paid. It wasn't a lot of money. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I thought the thing that we might discuss while we're discussing this issue is that uh, my experience with the chaplain is that at Barton State School I've got a chaplain. He's a great guy. Everyone loves him. Mm. Um, What's wrong with chaplaincy? If we're, you know, and because so many people have a similar experience in everyone's own community, it's very difficult to put up your hand and to, to say anything against chaplaincy mm. at the... Um... You're seen as, as a bit cranky, aren't you? Yeah. Because, as you say, they're usually chosen for their nice personality, their ability to get on with people, to win friends, and mm. it was exactly the same for me. The chaplain that I got to know somewhat well, mm. you know, having shared a staff room with him for several years was just like you described. He was, a, he was a nice enough guy. You know, he really liked people. He was a caring, compassionate person. You know, he, he was perfect for the role in a sense. But also, the, um, you know, what most people are not aware of is chaplains go there with the task in their mind of somehow, somehow finding a way to influence students and, if possible, staff as well, influence them in a manner that brings them even just a little bit closer to that, you know, that, that, that communion with their religion that they want people to have. And this one that I knew, he found his way into the, into the um, confidence of the principal. And on one occasion... He got the whole school shut down. All classes were suspended and the whole school students and staff alike were herded up to the school hall to listen to an American visiting evangelist who didn't talk about religion, but it was, it was just a way of inviting students to attend a Christian rally. And they were giving away free tickets, you know, as if it was something of monetary value. It was, it was the biggest con. Mm. And, and this was all done by this extremely uh, mild-mannered, softly spoken chaplain, you know. He was not a pushy person, mm. but he managed to get the whole school into the school hall look, listening to this. Look, from the school's evangelist. point of view, it's a, it's a free staff member to help out with all the little things mm that need doing around the place. So why wouldn't a school take a chaplain when it's basically free? It doesn't cost their budget anything. A helping hand. So, of course, the school's going to want them. But, you know, these guys come from the outside. So in an ideal world, we should just be allocating the money to a school budget and letting them employ, you know, public servants the way that we would normally hire people who come into a school. So... That's the problem. And These guys come in with be, an agenda. There appears to be a, a, a considerable need for well-trained counsellors. Mm. Mm. Uh, if, if, I mean, there, there are a lot of stories in the press about children suffering various um, you know, conditions that a lot of people go through during their teenage years. 
and yet they're being given chaplains mm. who are not qualified or trained mm. to deal with most of their problems. No, but they're good at being a nice guy. Good at being a nice guy, and that's about it. Mm. Of course, the obvious objection is that under the current law, uh, the government said you must be approved by a religious organisation in order to do this role, even though you're not allowed to conduct religious activity in the role. So it's not enough just to be a nice guy or a nice woman. <laughs> it's be a nice religious one as well. So that's the case, isn't it, for the, 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 how it's discrimination or how we're arguing it's discrimination is that we have someone who is going to apply for a role and say that they cannot get the role because they're not a religious person. Yes. So uh, Meredith and I guess your organisation, Hugh, the Rationalists, put the word out trying to find a suitable candidate to run a test case. And you've come up with a lady called Juliet Armstrong. She's been acting as a chaplain since 2016. She's apparently not religious, I'll just read part of this article from the Saturday paper. Armstrong loves her job, but she nearly didn't get to do it. The problem was not with her professional qualifications. She holds a Bachelor of Education degree and a postgraduate diploma in counselling. And after gaining the second qualification, she spent 10 months unemployed. The problem was with her religious qualifications or lack of them. So it cost her 10 months of unemployment and... So she's been chosen as the one to run the test case and she managed to get a job as a chaplain uh, through a loophole. Here's what happened. Um, But a fortuitous conjunction of events has now led to the legal challenge. The vital link in the chain is Armstrong's long job search. Having found herself unable to get work through the big religious providers of chaplaincy services because all of their advertisements required that applicants be committed Christians, she eventually found a smaller operator called OnPsych, which mostly provides psychological services in Australia, but does a sideline in providing non-religious chaplaincy. And there's a quote from this organisation saying they got involved in this area when it was legal to have secular chaplains during the Gillard era. Then when the law was changed by Abbott to exclude uh, non-religious people, this on-site group stumbled across a, uh, a church minister from the Uniting Church and he was happy... Well, they found a loophole... The definition of the word chaplain in the guidelines says workers must be ordained, endorsed or approved by a religious denomination. And they found a Uniting Church guy who was happy to endorse non-religious chaplains. Hmm. So, um, provided they were otherwise qualified for the work. And so that's how Armstrong was able to get work through the Victorian schools, through this sort of loophole. So anyway, they're going to run the case saying that she has been discriminated against for at least 10 months and is having to go through these loopholes in order to do her job. So that was interesting by this group who's found a loophole or a friendly minister to endorse secular chaplains. And you'd half expect, wouldn't you, organisations like Scripture Union and the other major chaplaincy you know, organisations, the ones that find the chaplains, you'd expect them to, to look at her and say... We've got to shut this down, wouldn't you? Yes, you would expect that. You'd expect mm. that. I'm interested in that 
um, because in the UK, uh, humanists uh, are quite often chaplains. Mm. Um, the funding in the UK, presumably, doesn't insist that chaplains be religious. That's right. So, mm. yeah, that, there's, I don't think there's any... Yep. There mustn't be. Mm. Um, humanism wouldn't be considered a religion under the, the definition of the legislation in Australia. Mm. See, it's not going to... Even if they win, it's not going to solve the problem. Say they open up chaplaincy to non-religious people. The problem is it's so poorly paid that the only people who are going to want to do this are religious nutters who are so committed to to Bible bashing that they see it as their cause. They're willing so, to put up with poverty yep. because Jesus wants them to. So even, yeah. if, even if this case wins and the government's forced to return to the Gillard-era Gillard laws, just through... What did we say about that poem from Yeats again the other day? It was the, the, the worst of all of passionate intensity, and this is what happens. Yeah. These people will still completely dominate the chaplaincy sphere. It, we shouldn't be having outside people in schools. They should be going through the education department as properly employed staff like teachers are. That's, mm. that's the only way to solve it. But um, if you're listening, Meredith, or anyone in the rationalists, I've got one problem. Oh, with okay. this and uh, run this past Meredith next time you're having a board meeting because here's my concern is that schools don't actually employ chaplains. They have a contract with Scripture Union who employs the chaplains. So a school could, you know, I'm just, I haven't looked into this in depth, but right. I'm just running the defence argument here. For, I, I, for whom? Well, for for Scripture Union at this stage, just okay. I'm playing devil's advocate almost literally here. Aren't I? But they could say, uh, school, they could argue, look, the schools don't employ chaplains. They actually just contract with a service provider like Scripture Union, and they say, oh, we'd like a chaplain. Send us, send us one, and they get sent one. Now, Scripture Union, so, so the school isn't necessarily being discriminatory in that practice. The Scripture Union, when it hires people, is being discriminatory, but they're a religious organisation and they're therefore exempt. So, I think you might have a good point there. So, I think that's going to be that's how they will get around it, and so, that's how all of this stuff this it, it's it's got around in the margins, isn't it? Yeah. It's like religious instruction. It's, so it's just, got around in the margins. Yeah. yeah. So I just hope they're aware of the process that happens there. That it's a contract with the likes of Scripture Union. And, yeah, hopefully that doesn't ruin the case. But Well, yeah, yeah we'll I, I don't know. But mm. I think I wonder if the purpose of the case is not so much to, in the hope that we would win it, but mm. um, I think it would be the same thing as Ron Williams' high court challenges. Whatever happens, the federal government will have the means to get around it. Yep. I've, got, I've, I've got one way of killing it off. Are you ready for this, Hugh? No, I'm not. <laughs> Killing off the chaplaincy program. Yeah, killing off the chaplaincy program. All right. Here's how you do it. Kill all the chaplains. No. No. (laughs) You get a friendly Satanist organisation to endorse a chaplain and and to enter a school um, as a Satanist. And, oh, I'm not going to be proselytising Satanism, but that will drive them insane, the thought that government money 
is being spent on a Satanist who can legally enter a school and, and, be, and they can't stop them. It's a religious group who endorses a Satanist. So you just need to find a smallish school somewhere with a parent group of potential Satanists who are willing to accept... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can see where said, this is starting to fall. Easier said than done. <laughs> okay, that's the tough part. But, yeah. but, but you know, or a principal who's who's just dead on against chaplains, who'll be up for it. I and think the interesting thing about that, though, is that it's a genuinely good example, and it perfectly illustrates the problem. Yep. But the other side would just say, "Oh no, you're just being silly." No, but too bad. This is what the Satanic Temple would do. In America, like this is the sort of thing where they say, "Okay, you're going to put up a Ten Commandments monument in front of the city hall. We want our Satanist monument up." And when they do that, the relig- the Christian groups are say, "Oh, in that case, we don't want anything." So they would rather kill a program. It's like um, prayers at um, the beginning of council meetings. Again, in America, the Satanic Temple will rock up and demand. Uh, the equal right to do a, a satanic invocation. And at that point, they say, well, we're going to scrub uh, prayers and invocations entirely. So there, there you go. Um, if this particular one fails, then plan B, the Satanist option, when you really want to get serious. When you want to get, yeah. I think the difficulty is that if you did, you'd have to organise the Satanist option yes. and all those people that were involved in organising it could never have any role in political life anywhere after that that's all right i'm up for it (laughs) (laughs) okay go for it there you go so there you go dear listener that's the latest on the uh on the chaplaincy program now the ruddick panel which uh, has conducted its inquiry and has received thousands of submissions 12th man did you ever write a submission no, not uh, individually. Right, okay. Did you endorse anybody? Or did you... Yeah, I endorsed one um, that was written by Craig. Right, Craig. Do you know a bloke called Craig? No. I think he's one of your podcast supporters. Oh, uh, was it Dean Stretton's? Was it that one? No, he wrote his oh, own. Okay. All right, very good. Mm. Hugh, did you write one? Uh, the Rationalists did write one and submit one. It was mm. written mostly by Tosca Lloyd, but with... Uh, input from all of us mm. and Meredith did meet with the Ruddock inquiry as well and mm-hmm. had, an, had a quite an interesting discussion where uh, she felt the our views were were heard right so um, she felt like she got a good hearing got a good hearing um, from memory they they picked out something that was written in our submission which was perhaps a bit harsh and focused on that and got us to say something to the effect of, oh, look, yeah, that, that may have been a bit harsh. Right. I can't remember what it was, but... Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway, they've received all their submissions, they've written a report, they've given it to the government, and the government is going to reveal all to us in the near future. Meanwhile, people like Peter Dutton are out there beating the drums already and whipping up sentiment for... Uh, really um, basically saying, not sure what's in this panel recommendation, but in any event, we need to be protecting religious freedom. And he's coming out pretty hard saying that that needs to be done. 
um, well, parents should be... Well, actually, I'll, I'll read a bit of a quote here. He's called for the entrenchment of religious freedoms, including the right of religious schools to sack gay teachers and for parents to withdraw their children from the anti-LGBTI bullying program, Safe Schools. So he's come out leading some fire in the lead-up to the release of that. I am worried, Hugh, about this review. As soon as Ruddock was put in charge, I had a really bad feeling, and I think they're going to come out with some pretty serious recommendations to try and entrench religious freedom in some way. Yes, I'm really worried about it as well. The Courier-Mail article seemed to contain some insider information that they are in some respect going to enshrine religious freedom in law Mm. as a right in some way, which bothers me and I think we should discuss whether or not we agree that it should be a right and it comes back, my worry is it comes back if they were going to enshrine it as a right in terms of what religious freedom actually means under the United Nations, I don't think any of us would have a problem. Mm. But I, th- I fear the way they're going to enshrine it is that only positive religious beliefs have any semblance of protection and anyone with non-religious beliefs doesn't enjoy the same protection. And they're not... And the other aspect is that I don't think they're enshrining a human right or something that's intrinsic to a human. They're enshrining something that's a, 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 a series of different belief systems that some humans hold in Australia. 70% of them evidently hold some sort of religious belief. It's a kind of ideological right or a cultural right, would you say? Because, I mean, religion is a, is a product of human culture. <laughs> Yes, and I think that's where some people would disagree. Perhaps the three of us may have views that roughly agree that this is a set of beliefs, but to a lot of other people, particularly devoutly religious people, it's more than that. It's Mm. something that they see as totally ingrained within their culture and their personality, and it's it's an aspect of themselves intrinsically that needs protection, Mm. and I think we need to have a good argument against that. Sure well, well it, it's, it's the use of the word freedom that is a misnomer because essentially what they're wanting is special privileges to ignore the laws that everybody else is subject to. So when they talk about freedom, they mean freedom from the generally applicable laws because they've got a special belief in something else is what it is. And that, that's not freedom. No, that special is special. Club. It's special privilege. So it's a misuse of the word freedom. Mm. Um, and that's what we have to really, I think, say, whoa, 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 stop. What you're saying here isn't freedom. It is, it's ignoring laws and being exempt from laws that the rest of us are subject to. It's special privilege. It's not freedom. Mm. So It's a genuine battle of ideas, isn't it? And I think mm. all three of us are just getting more excited about bringing it on, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but it really is, isn't it? It's a battle of ideas. It really is. This idea that we have that it's, it's actually an, probably more an infringement on other people's freedoms. I think the thing with this, when you say bring it on as a battle of ideas, it, it, I think so. Every, every debate that seems to come up when it's a battle against traditional 
religious beliefs and a more secular output, I seem to feel like the public comes out so strongly against that traditional let's privilege religion type of view when you see comments to articles online and you see commentary from real people because there is this sort of... um, there's a narrow band of the population who tend to be in positions of power or uh, in in the media, which is a, a little bit unrepresentative of what the general populace feels. I mean, even if, they say, there's 30% of us that are non-religious, but there's also quite a substantial proportion of those people who say they're Christian who are nominal in, in, in the way they're Christian. They're a uniting church type of Christians, say like Rod Bauer, who have more, I think, personally have more in common with the sort of views that we have, the very tolerant views. They're not wishing to impose their uniting church view of the world on everyone else in the same way that, Trevor, you're not trying to impose a a non-religious or whatever your particular beliefs are on everyone else. I'd like to, but I can't. (laughs) (laughs) But not in the sense of your your personal yeah. metaphysical view. Yeah. You're trying to just, you're trying to you're joking I'm just joking you're yep. joking. But yep. you're but you're um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that when you're trying to say we should be more secular, you're mm. not trying to impose a particular non-religious view mm. on everyone, and that's something that seems to also be generally misunderstood. People think when you say we're trying to impose secularism, it's often equated to this a Stalinist idea that you're trying to impose non-religion on everyone Mm. or trying to push religion out of the public square square altogether. You know, I don't think most people think that. I think it's just the argument run by the religious lobby to to sort of just as a smokescreen. I think it's just they they straw man the sort of secular argument and and run that. The average Joe doesn't care. And the average Joe is not going to care about this Ruddock inquiry. And what's going to happen is... We unfortunately have a preponderance of religious nutters in our parliament. Uh, you know, the likes of Scott Morrison and Julie Bishop and Malcolm Turnbull and, other, and all these sort of people. And there's going to be all these lobbyists from the Christian organisations walking the corridors of parliament. And there's virtually no secular voices. There's, there's no secular lobby work, walking the corridors of parliament house. So they'll just make decisions, even though the most of us think exactly the opposite. I think, yeah, exactly. And as mm. Paul said, bring it on. Let mm. them do it. It really only... I, I, I actually mm. are quite happy of the way that religious belief is eroding in the Western world, and I think it's making... creates the opportunity for us to have a better society and uh, everything correlates with better societies, more wealthy societies that are more irreligious. Let them make these stupid mistakes and further alienate their own flock and all of the non-religious people who... We'll vote but, them out. But we are, we are becoming more irreligious in the population, yet our laws are becoming more pro-religion. Like, until Goff came action, along... Trevor. It's a rearguard action. And this, this, this started in the late 19th century with Freud and Marx and Darwin, really. Mm-hmm. This is when so-called Christian fundamentalism was born. It was a reaction to these newfangled modern ideas that really created the modern world, you know, mm. that biologically, you know, we come from simpler uh, organisms, you know, that psychologically we're much more complex than, 
you know, go and see a priest and, you know, talk about your marital problems. And, 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 and with Marx, you know, the, the idea that we don't have to accept the traditional structures of political power. And, and all of these were threats to, to the Christians and Christian fundamentalism was born out of a reaction to these new ideas of modernity and they're still fighting. But, but here's my point. You know, if you look at the 1900s, we were much more religious as a population than we are now. Mm. But for 50 to 60 years, we ran an education system that didn't give a single cent to religious schools. Mm. And there were no school chaplains funded by the government yeah. in, pub, in, in public schools. Over the last 40 to 50 years, we've become increasingly irreligious, yet we're funneling more and more money now to private religious schools. And in the last, you know, Howard introduced the chaplaincy program. So our laws are actually running contrary to the the general sentiment in the community. And so I, I I'm, think I'm convinced the Ruddock panel will be successful, not because of the argument, but just because that's the form line that's, that's happening. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, but I think it, what Paul's saying is right. This is the last gasp, and this is okay. this, this is evidence. This, this is evidence of the last. This is like a flare, a, a star that's flaring as it as it dies off. It, it, it is. It is. It's highly it's motivated. The dying words. Whereas <laughs> irreligious people, on the whole, are not highly motivated. They just want to enjoy life. But yeah, these people right. are very highly very motivated. motivated. They're going to pull every string available to them and influence every politician who will give them their ear, and they are working hard. Yeah. I think also the thing I would probably slightly disagree with you on, Trevor, is mm. that uh, when you say that dichotomy between how secular we were and how privileging we're becoming, mm. we were secular, but we were secular in the sense of a universally religious country. The secularism was not to give atheism a fair go. The secularism was to stop the Protestants, Protestants from stamping out the Catholics. Correct. It you was know, the battle it was between a very, the two. Very much of a, they, a, a stopping um, sectarianism. The Catholics and the Protestants didn't trust each other and they couldn't agree <laughs> and so they just threw their hands up and said, well, nobody gets to get into schools. Yes. Is, is how that went. But now it's becoming a case of how do we, how do we revive a dying... Brand. Yeah. Do you, do you suspect that this inquiry led by Ruddock might not be a catalyst in as, in as much as if they come out and, and, and then publicly proclaim, well, the, inqu the inquiry found that religious people need more protection, need, need their rights enshrined in law and all this, that it might somehow provoke a more vigorous public discussion about, yes. about the whole issue and that... In the end, it might work against them because they'll be seen as people whose relevance is waning and yet whose influence is increasing out of proportion to their numbers. I think so. That's exactly how I feel about it. And you've kind of brought that to my attention with your comment about, you know, bring on the battle of ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the sort of thing that happened when Tony Abbott made all those extremely golden age pronouncements that he made everyone reacted in horror. It was so out of touch with how people are feeling and I think that's what will happen with this inquiry. So in a sense I am, a, I am worried about what they're going to do. Or try to do. Yeah, but the long game 
is probably going to act act in the in our favour. Do you agree with both of us? I don't quite agree with you, Trevor, oh, because okay. I, you're rolling up your sleeves and I think we're going to have a disagreement at some point during the night. <laughs> I, just thought, I thought you were being an ideal stand-in for the velvet glove because I thought you were going to disagree, agree with both of us. Which would be, uh, yeah, I'm on, I'm on track with both of you. Yeah, okay. Right, change of topic. Gentlemen, we've just had a wedding. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. So, 19th of May, 2018... Look, I wasn't planning on watching it, but uh, some friends got together and we had a bit of a dinner party somewhere and just had it on as, and we're just joking and laughing about it. It was quite entertaining, actually, to watch the show. Uh, did you watch it and did you have any thoughts of, about it? Also, I wasn't intending to watch it, but I just happened to be at my sister's house and all, all the sisters were watching it and I was getting bored with my brother-in-law, who can be a little bit cranky sometimes, so... Mm. Yep. retreated to the living room with the sisters and watched it. Yep. And, um, you know, it was sort of a kind of strange, perverted fascination with the whole business because I'm not any kind of royalist or supporter of the monarchy. In fact, I'm quite against it on the whole. But it's a bizarre spectacle, isn't it? Mm. It is, it is. Yeah. I, I, um, I also watched it. Yes. I think you're going to comment on Bishop... Uh, Curry, is that right? Uh, 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 let me play a little bit. I've got a little bit of okay. I've got a bit of his uh, sermon. Then we can then we can talk about it. So I'll just uh, I'll just try try and play a bit. Fire uh, made it possible. What? There is no. There was no Bronze Age without fire. No Iron Age without fire. No Industrial Revolution without fire. The advances of science and technology are greatly dependent on the human ability and capacity to take fire and use it for human good. Anybody get here in a car today? An automobile? Nod your heads if you did, I'm guessing. I know there were some carriages. But those of us who came on cars, fire, the controlled, harnessed fire, made that possible. I know that the Bible says, and I believe it, that Jesus walked on the water. But I have to tell you, I didn't walk across the Atlantic Ocean to get here. Controlled fire in that plane got me here. Fire makes it possible for us to text and tweet and email and Instagram and, and Facebook and socially be dysfunctional with each other. Fire makes all of, all of that possible. And, and Deschardins said fire was one of the greatest discoveries in all of human history. And he then went on to say that if humanity ever harnesses the energy of fire again, if humanity ever captured the energy of love, it will be the second time in history that we have discovered fire. It's not your normal wedding speech, is it? No. <laughs> I'm a little bit unhinged. It was. It, it, I find it very interesting, though, to hear the re- reactions of other people about the whole the whole thing. Mm. And I tried to approach the whole thing and what I've said to a lot of people afterwards. I don't want to be a hater of the wedding and everything that happened, but I have to say that my own personal reaction was I was quite annoyed by it. Mm. I was huffing and puffing and storming around the house. (laughs) (laughs) I, th- I thought um, just preceding this this um, quite amazing uh, spectacle of his of his speech, 
the whole wedding, uh, it seemed to be more about the marriage of Jesus Christ to, to the church. I, I, I don't know how many times the word God was mentioned in this wedding, but it seemed to be an inordinate amount of times compared to other uh, I, I can't recall too much of other weddings, but this one really struck me as it was It was really mentioned a lot by Justice Welby as well, and it seemed like the church had really gone out of their way to to promote and, and evangelise um, the, um, the mission of their church in the wedding. And then in particular this... I um, when he when he got about two or three minutes in, it became clear that it, it that he was going to go on for a considerable period of time, <laughs> and he very very quickly departed from the business of the day mm. of the wedding of the two people who were directly in front of him and looking at him, wondering if he was ever going to finish. And um, his whole his whole speech just went on forever. He departed from the script. Apparently, he tweeted. He had given the um, the words of his speech to be published by an American, by a prominent, I think it was New Republic, by a prominent American publisher, and someone from his office or him tweeted it, tweeted the publication of his speech eight minutes after he finished doing it, and whilst it was on, I was quite horrified because I felt, as Paul had said to me prior to us starting recording this, that. This was this guy's 15 minutes of fame and he was going to make the most of it to promote it. And I just felt it was shallow, cheap self-promotion. And um, I think what bothers me a little bit is a lot of people felt that they got something out of it. People that I spoke to felt that what he said was good. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think you could you're, fault you're him. mixing in the wrong circles. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly I am, but uh, I'm a man of the people, Trevor. <laughs> but uh, I think people relate to what he said, but I don't think he said anything that was any more complex or than all you need is love, you know, something that the Beatles sung about, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And he, I don't think he made... I think if a politician made the comments that he made, could we imagine mm. if Malcolm Turnbull stood up and said that we need love and if, you know... If, if we can transpose fire into love, you know, we'll make that that person would be seen as horribly naive mm. and silly, and it, of peddling simplistic solutions to problems that require much more sophisticated solutions. It was a pretty clunky analogy, too, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It was a bit. It was a bit like Australian politicians trying to talk in the language of MLK, and I felt he was trying to have his his I have a dream moment. Mm. And do his do his MLK speech, and mm. it was nice, but it wasn't. It mm. didn't. It moved me to huffing and puffing rather than to tears. Mm. Tough man. Any anything beyond that? Did you no, I agree with what you said. Mm. Um, while watching it myself, I just thought the guy really lacked any sens sensitivity of of the moment that he was in because. It wasn't his show, you know. It was, it was for the the couple who were getting married, and he, I think he stole the show from them in a sense. Mm. I thought he was incredibly selfish. Yeah, mm. exactly. I think, you know, he submitted a script to the organisers that was quite different from what he delivered, and if he at any stage thought he couldn't stick to his script, he should have said to them, "Look." Here's my script. Uh, I'm liable to go off script 
and rave on, are you okay with that? Because that's the risk of hiring me for this event. So I assume he didn't, and he just decided that bugger everybody else and the timetable and the agreement that everybody's had about when things are going to happen. He'll just do what he wants to when he wants to. I thought that was just an incredibly selfish act from him. Mm. But the other thing I got from it was, like, different people in the audience were sort of shaking their head and going, oh, listen to this nutter. Mm. Isn't he... Isn't he just stupid? Like, how could he say these things? And somebody's got to stop him. And isn't this crazy? But there were none of those sort of looks when, um, well, what was his name here? The other character doing the rock show was uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justice Justin Welby. Justin Welby, yeah. Have a listen to what he had to say. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. God is love, and those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. In the presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have come together to witness the marriage of Henry, Charles, Albert, David, and Rachel Megan, to pray for God's blessing on them, to share their joy, and to celebrate their love. Marriage is a gift of God in creation, through which husband and wife may know the grace of God. Marriage is a way of life made holy by God and blessed by the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ with those celebrating a wedding at Cana in Galilee. No one should enter into it lightly or selfishly, but reverently and responsibly in the sight of Almighty God. We pray with them that the Holy Spirit will guide and strengthen them, that they may fulfill God's purposes for the whole of their earthly life together. So he was apparently using the standard Anglican church service for holy matrimony published in Common Worship, the liturgical text of the Church of England. So he was dead on script, and people accepted all that guff without batting an eyelid. Yet when the Bishop Curry goes on about fire, everyone's going, what a crazy guy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I put it to you, I put it to you that Justin Welby was giving the more, the more ludicrous speech of the two of them. Well, well I, th- I actually thought that he was going to say one of Harry's names was God. He was mentioning God <laughs> that often. <laughs> it was almost God. God would be big at God, big at another God, and yes. big at Jesus. Yes. It was, uh, uh, is that really the standard script? According to this Wikipedia entry that I found, it says he officiated using the standard Anglican church service for holy matrimony. Well, maybe it's a sign of how times have changed. The, the weddings I've been to, none of them have, have had that much God mentioned in right. them. It was so impersonal, wasn't it? Like those, All of that could have been said. And there was nothing that related to this particular couple. No. It was nothing personal in that at no, all. They were just... They were just um, Incidental they're, subjects they're almost, to the day yeah. where, where, where the real stars were God they're and Jesus. They were almost furniture, weren't they? Yeah. The event. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, people complain that it went on a bit. But I say, if you truly believe in that stuff, then, and that an interventionist God, who, if you implore him to bless a, a, a marriage and to and to look after these two, and by praying to this God, good things will happen. 
they didn't go nearly long enough. Like, if you were a true believer, you'd be, you would be spending six, seven, eight hours um, asking God to bless the couple in as many different ways as you possibly could. Like, it really wasn't long enough. If you actually believe in this stuff, then sort of 15 minutes from Bishop Curry and another 15 from um, Selby, it, it, it's nowhere near enough how, if you truly believe in this stuff. How old is the young couple? What are they in? Oh, she's mid late twenties or something. She's at least thirty, I think, and he must be somewhere near there. I don't know. I'm really not. I'm not. A, I'm not. A, I don't even read right. the Woman's Day or any. I, 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 I don't know what's going well, on. Given the life expectancy of upper class Brits, they'll probably live well into their eighties. They've got a good fifty years, Trevor, mm. to spend time prostrate on the chapel floor. I thought the whole demonstrating thing demonstrating their commitment to God. They have, they have. But I thought the whole thing also highlighted how you couldn't help, as, as you were saying earlier, you saw the expressions on people's faces. You saw it pan to Elton John who had this sort of what is going on here sort of expression on his face and other relatives who were smiling and looking at each other. Mm. You couldn't help but think how out of touch this whole ritual is with modern day life. Mm that, again, it comes back to that thing where the more religion pushes itself onto us and pushes itself forward... The more anachronistic it looks. The, yeah, the, the more it highlights how out of touch it is. Mm. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to say about it was I really I agree with you about saying how that, that pastor was so selfish because the other thing is that he knows is that everyone is trading onto this goodwill that the happy couple have, that they're such popular figures. It's such a great moment for the monarchy that he's got a lot of latitude. He's, mm. he's going to have to do something terribly wrong for the media to be to coming down on him. So as long as he stays within some very poor parameters, he can take a bit of licence here. Mm-hmm. And so can, say, um, Justin Bowlby take a bit of licence, though it appears that he wasn't. But the other thing was that... I would have thought that the headlines the next day were a little bit more critical than saying, oh, the Reverend stole the show, mm-hmm. in the sense of saying as if it was a, as if it was a positive thing. Mm. So I kept on looking at the media and seeing and had to wait until certain, um, so, certain uh, media people came out and started saying things that, are, oh, look, it was a little bit over the top, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. He was taking advantage of the situation. But there wasn't, still wasn't too much of that sort of coverage. And so where, where perhaps we're saying regular people, I reckon there's at least 50, 40 to 50% of people who thought he was outrageous, ridiculous. And then there was the other 50% who thought, well, what he said was great. And... Right. That's the royal wedding. Yeah. Next topic. Did either of you watch Eurovision 2018 at all? No, I have to say I didn't. I saw the winning, the winning right. song, which I thought was quite good. I merely mention it. Scott loves Eurovision, <laughs> so he's going to be really bitter that I make this comment in his absence. <laughs> okay. But I, I'm only mentioning it because I saw this great line, which was, "If you've ever wondered why the Western world put the United States in charge of popular music for some time in the second half of the 20th century, have a look at the Eurovision Song Contest." <laughs> It's probably a good point. (laughs) That's all I really want to say about it.
am I right in assuming ABBA was... Um, uh, connected with Eurovision, they won it, didn't they? Yeah, they won it. Yeah, yeah, they won it. They would have been a success without Eurovision. They probably yeah, would have been. But yeah. I think that they probably gave Eurovision some legitimacy mm. that it just doesn't deserve. <laughs> it's been foisted on the world ever since because of them. Some of the recent years' uh, winning acts have been interesting. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought that was a really good line, so I just threw that in there. Mm. Right, Twelfth uh, Man. There was an interesting article. Um, about signage in inner Sydney. Indeed, and we've got Strathfield. Mm, Strathfield City Council recently voted for a motion that states all signage is to be displayed. Now, this is applying to private shops. Uh, all signage is to be displayed in the English language with a direct or near direct translation into another language using smaller letters or character which must not exceed more than 30% of the overall size of the English language text. So we're talking about shops, restaurants, cafes in ethnic areas of Strathfield and the council proposing that signage must be in English and if you want an alternative language, it's got to be uh, no more than 30% of the size of the English language. Twelfth man... Good idea or a bad idea? Uh, in my estimation, it's a, it's a very good idea because um, it's a predominantly English language country, and to me, it's a it's an issue of public access. Now, some people, like the writers of the article, it, uh, for example, were arguing that to allow people to express or to 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 put up their signs only in a foreign language is an act of treating them with uh, equal respect and equal rights as the people who speak English. In other words, they're saying it's a matter of, it's an equality issue. Mm-hmm. I see it quite differently. I see it's, it's, it's an access at issue. Mm-hmm. So by allowing, um, say, ethnic minorities to, in a sense, form a little, um, a little ghetto where people who don't speak their language, their particular foreign language, would, obviously they wouldn't be barred from the area, but they would have a lot of trouble accessing what is available, what sort of services or goods they can buy in in various shops. And it would serve to actually discourage people who weren't associated with that particular ethnicity from visiting at all. It might encourage them, for example. I doubt it. I like to frequent the market at Anala Civic Centre. Yeah. Where there's lots of Asian shops. Indeed. And the signage is all Asian. It's, there's no English on the signs? Or very little English? Very little. So you really have no idea what's going on until you walk in. And, we, mm. well, you know, it'd be a butcher shop, for example. And you can tell it's a butcher shop because yeah. you can see all the meat inside, but all yeah. the signage outside. And I find it quite appealing but you're a pretty because, adventurous sort of a guy. Well, but I'm just making the point. You're yeah. saying that it might detract people from entering. But, I think it might. But you're this is the libertarian twelfth man. Oh come on! So I don't you, buy this libertarian <laughs> tag at all. But, but hang on a minute. <laughs> you have previously been very comfortable with shopkeepers having all sorts of freedom yes. to basically do whatever they like to and trade. let, and to let trade. the market decide. Yes, to trade. And if they behave appallingly by discriminating against mm-hmm. gay people, etc., then people will find out and they won't 
They exactly. won't provide their business. So couldn't yeah. you therefore say for the signage argument, mm. well, if it's, uh, you know, if it's going to discourage um, non... Let's take a, a, a Thai butchery, for example, mm. or Vietnamese butchery, that um, non-Vietnamese won't enter and therefore they'll go out of business according to your line of thought and that's just going to be their problem. If the signage mm. causes an issue, then that's their issue. Let them... Let the market decide. Wouldn't you normally be thinking along those lines? Look, that's that's certainly a, a valid argument, but I just disagree. I th- I think it's a bit like, um, you know, all public buildings now pretty much are required to have access for people in wheelchairs, aren't they? Mm. Public, so it's a matter of it's a matter of uh, facilitating access for the, the the broadest possible section of the community. And I, I see it as the same. You know, if you, if you allow people to effectively uh, isolate anyone who isn't like you, very adventurous and loves to sort of take a chance and go in and see what they can find, then I think effectively you're allowing uh, enclaves to, to, to become established. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. And I think you're with him on this one. Uh, well, I think you're you're um, you're deliberately trying to wind him up here, <laughs> and I don't think you really believe in your argument. But no. but if you want to have the argument, no, no. I, 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 you no. know, we're, we're talking well, private businesses. We're talking private businesses. You know, the Chinatown sort of precincts, this sort of thing. Sure, okay, but but the um, would would a libertarian want? Would a libertarian ask uh, argue for a shopkeeper to be able to trade in? Any any currency that they want, they want to. They, they can the, we can we just deal with the signage first before we move on to currency. I think you've got to have a common. Some things in society I'm, I'm need to be common, and one thing in our society that's but, a common but, is but, our currency. But, but hang on, we, it's not a, it's not a freedom <laughs> to be able to trade in any currency that you want, and because you're impacting on the freedom of everyone else. In the same sense you need to have an understanding of the common language. Mm. And so I think it's quite reasonable to say that, well, the majority of the signage needs to be in that language. And another example, which is, as you guys know, I used to play quite a lot of poker, mm. is there's a fairness issue here that when you go to some place where all the signage is in another language and it's not the language of your country where you pay taxes, there's a feeling of entitlement that I need to understand what's happening here at the poker table, you play with people of all different different ethnicities, etc. Often, something one of the rule is any conversation at that table must be in English. And why is that? Because that's the common language. And because what sometimes happens if people want to cheat the system, you can have two or three players rocking up. They might be from a different different language. They might all be related or whatever. And during the play, they start talking to each other in their own language. All the other players have a tendency to assume that they're colluding with each other, cheating, telling each other what their cards are, and quite often they are. It's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a tactic to try and rip yeah. off the system. So that's why, Trevor... We we, we 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 need to we need to get over your devil's advocate with, argument. With respect, Hugh, <laughs> that's not a good analogy. Okay, people sitting around a poker table agreeing to a common language is not the same as, as signage on a Vietnamese butcher shop. So, air traffic control is all done in English. Exactly. 
There because people need, people need to be able to communicate it's for over the airwaves in order for it to work. Street signs, so, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm okay with that. But, Paul, back to the shop. <laughs> you talked about access. It was important for access. But you were quite happy to deny access for a gay person to no. buy a cake. No, I never did that. Uh, no, you've, you're, you're, you're yeah. setting me up in right. ways that are not honest here. I right. never said a gay person should be denied access to buy a cake. I never said that. Right. What I said was, as you well know, right. that an, a private business person should not be forced to create, to actually make something that they don't want to make. Okay, so you were, you were dragged kicking and screaming to that position because initially you were, you, were not, you, were, you were open to the idea of a shopkeeper basically having freedom to conduct their affairs and with as minimal sort of government interference as possible. Yes. So it just... So you just, see just, this just, as why, an why interference you? in their business, do you? So do you, Trev, do you, do you actually think... With this, or, or are you trying to expose I'm, some I'm, some flaws in Paul's I'm, I'm, reasoning, or or, or is this? Are you arguing both? both. From, so you think we should have signage I, in any language you want? I when I I'll give you the example again of the Anala Civic Centre with the Vietnamese butchery. Right. I don't. I'm quite happy to see Vietnamese signage on their shop and no English signage. I'm quite happy with that. I'll, I'll but work why? it out. What's the benefit of that? But but hang on a minute. Shouldn't it be the other way? Like if you're going to be telling people that they have to do something, don't you need a reason to say why they have to? So if if we're talking about freedoms of people to basically do okay. what they want as the basic premise, and only society interfering where it's necessary. What about street so, signs, Trevor? That's because a public uh, in anything, the valley. A, a public's I, I, there I, are street signs in Chinese is public, but. But they're also in English, aren't they? Because if they were only in Chinese, the majority of the community would go there and say, I don't know where the hell I am. I can't read the signs. Street signs. um, And it's public safety. Signs in railway stations. Of course, they they must be in English. But we're talking about a private business advertising their wares. Well, what if you got poisoned because you couldn't read the signage and you, th- you liked the look of this sort of... Or you suffered an allergy, for example. Yes, yeah, so you, you, had, you had a problem with penicillin clearly, allergic if, to it or something like that. And clearly, if I was in danger of an anaphylactic reaction from eating food at a restaurant and the menu was in giant... Well, giant, well they're not talking about menus, are they? They're really just talking about signage, but... Mm. You know, but how, such... but how long? If you're talking about signage, then surely the menu can be in any language you want to. Um, if you're a libertarian, you would think, yeah, I'm okay. Don't with... please, Trevor. I'm, don't oppress okay restaurant owners. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with the menu being in a foreign language. Actually, I am, because if I'm in that position where I'm at risk of an illness if I eat the wrong food, then um, I'd be I'd be going to places that I knew I could communicate well with the people and know that there's not going to be a prawn in my... Well, it actually, in, it's in actually an argument in favour of your side of the story because some in some but, restaurants, but, menus but, are in other... Like in French restaurants and Italian restaurants, a good portion of that menu is in French and Italian. Yeah, I'm comfortable with that. Look, the other side of it, from my point of view, is it's not 
such a big imposition on the business? Is it to require them to have English also? Mm. I don't think that's an unreasonable request in a country where the vast majority of people speak English. Yeah, they want to make a quid, surely. It'd be a massive change to any Chinatown if you if you went through a Chinatown and said, all the, all the large Chinese signs outside your doors, uh, all the Chinese characters outside, wipe that away, English instead, small amount, small Chinese characters. But, that, but a, a lot of them are in English. Yeah, but I don't think Chinatowns. that's what's being asked for. I don't think Strathfield Council is trying to change the character of the place or the businesses. They're not saying pull down your Chinese or Lebanese or whatever signs they are. They're just saying a, just make sure you also have English for and, those who need it. And that the Chinese sign is only 30% uh, in comparison to the English sign. That part I'd be yeah, willing that, yeah, to Yeah, I, 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 I would agree. That part may be... A little bit. Yeah, a little bit onerous. Yeah. Oh, so you're with me. I've convinced you both. No, you haven't. We, we just no, no, we, no, we, no, we've defeated you in the argument, <laughs> no. but we, 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 we are happy to end on a conciliatory note of, of, of ceding that point to you. I think that part <laughs> is negotiable. Oh, so, but the, requiring English, I don't think, is an unreasonable imposition. So, no, no, I don't think it is. Well... well in the currency you one, you, you didn't respond before, to my currency yeah, one. I'll you wanted to, to move very quickly off no, of no, that no, topic. I, oh, no, I don't want, I'm happy to go back to the currency one, <laughs> and I'll go back to the poker table as well. But, but just let me get back to the signage one. So, I mean, I did read it out at the beginning here about, you know, it must not exceed more than 30% of the overall size of the English language text. So what are you saying? Equal size or a little English subtitle is good enough? I is that what you're saying? As long as it's reasonable that someone right. can understand. That's right. So a little English subtitle would be okay. Sure. The general right. public can understand what's there. Yeah. Right. As um, long as people can see the sign and see the English translation and say, I know what that business is about. Right. I know what they trade in. I know because what I'll sort be of terribly, services they're trading I'll be terribly upset if I don't know what they're doing in there. Without walking in, well, it, it is it is a, it is an imposition on your freedom if you live in that community, and there's a business there that might be of benefit to you, but you don't know what it is. Yeah. It's an access issue. It's it is actually, but, but you can walk it's in the door and look. Yeah, and it could. But be... But you can't because it might all be in another language yeah. when you walk in. And and you know there there is a trend in, with certain ethnic uh, minorities to congregate in one suburb yes. and they effectively eventually the the people who don't belong to the, their ethnic group are eventually squeezed out and it's partly through this kind of yeah that's action. true that's another good point that we, we really want people to be assimilating that's right nicely to into be integrated integrated into, than assimilating is possibly not the right word but parallel communities if yes you like. mm. agree well, I'm I'm stripping the libertarian tag off you, twelfth man, on that on that basis. It, so it never was properly attached. With the currency one, of course, we need a common currency. So we need a common language too. Um, well, I, I don't see that the two necessarily. It's uh, not. I, a, I mean, it's not a perfect metaphor, but or a perfect comparison. You can't but force I think people to speak a language. I mean, obviously, in public. Yes, we can. Services, public buildings, we can. To become a citizen. So. You cannot become a citizen unless you understand yeah, yeah. the language. But, but for example... You also need to know a little bit about Don Bradman, but, but, evidently. Yeah, but let's say, for example, the Vietnamese butchery, uh, nobody in there speaks English. 
but I can point at the piece of meat I want and 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 order it that way. Mm. What are you saying that they should be forced to have an English language speaker on the premises? I think it's unfortunate that if they don't speak any English, and I think, um, for goodness sake, English is in big demand yeah. around the world. English is really the international. It, it'll language. be any person you speak to who's Asian has either done Eng- English language studies or is currently engaged. Yeah. Any students it, that come here, yeah, but they I, need to learn the language. So, so but. Back to my example, you were wanting to impose an English language sign because of access, and are you willing to impose an English language shop assistant as part of that? Can can there be a shop that just does not have an English language speaker in there? Is that okay? It's an interesting uh, question. Yeah, I think so, as long as you... I don't think every single person in society... Uh, or any shop, but as long as uh, if you're a member of a public, you can go into the shop, you can understand what's in there and someone can tell you. doesn't mean everyone. But what if there's nobody in there? It's just a mum and dad operation and neither of them speaks English. So you just have to point at stuff. Is that okay? Well, I don't know how that, how that person would actually be in it Australia and be unlikely, if they can't it? speak any well, English well, whatsoever. Well, well, if they're in an enclave, a Vietnamese enclave, <laughs> they could be doing very well. How did they sign the lease? <laughs> Or how, they came in as refugees. Their, their uncle signed the lease, and they're running the shop. You know, it's 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 entirely possible. Yeah, it's possible. But I think over with the passage of time, their children yeah. will absolutely be English speakers. But I t- and eventually, that phenomenon of you know non-English speaking shopkeepers will will disappear. Mm. It'll be pa- perhaps we're mm. talking about the difference between where the law should intervene or if it's necessary for it to intervene. It's a question of degree. It's a, yeah, a question of degree. Yeah, and I think, you know, Chinatown Precinct, we know that it's a Chinese restaurant and we'll just go in and poke at the menu and order something. So, Are there know, any restaurants that you've been into that didn't have English on the menu? Look, I can't think off the top of my head, but I certainly know I've been in Yamcha restaurants where the girls pushing the cart really had no command of English at all and you basically lifted the lid of the Yamcha basket and had a look and saw what it was and mm. decided whether you wanted it on your table or not. Like, that does happen. Mm. Let's face it. So uh, I'm just saying, like, I just think this proposal by Strathfield City Council is way over the top and we'll have to agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I had the experience when I was in my late teens of going to a Chinese restaurant in the Haymarket area of Sydney. Mm-hmm. And there was no English. It was all Chinese. And But I was with a young guy who was um, Chinese-Indonesian mm-hmm. and he could understand it. So he, he basically... Um, did all the ordering and everything because that was totally okay. so, totally alien for me, I so, have to say. So here's an interesting juxtaposition of ideas because I've advocated that the signage be allowed and not touched, but now we're moving to a different topic. We will be on the other side of the fences, I think, because okay. there was a story about 200 or 300 sort of intellectuals or public figures in France who were... So he signed a letter basically saying that those parts of the Quran calling for violence against Jews and Christians should be, er- should be 
erased out of the Quran. You shouldn't be allowed to sell a Quran with um, violence inciting words in it. And I thought that that was a good idea. Okay. And the twelfth man disagreed with me. I think I'm going to disagree with you <laughs> on this one. Yeah, I, 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 I came to this this podcast today thinking I was going to agree <laughs> with everything you've said because we have almost always agreed. So this is good entirely. This and good. we were, I think, we were accused of Kevin Donnelly of being in our own little echo chamber right. where we agreed with everything each other says, and it clearly is not the case. Yeah, good. No, I, I would totally disagree with that. I, okay, so my argument was that freedom of speech, we should be allowed to insult and offend and should not be prevented from doing so. But I drew the line at inciting violence. So the example was the Cronulla riots. So if somebody got up on a soapbox in Hyde Park and said, let's all go down to Cronulla Beach and whack those lebos over the head, they shouldn't be on our beach. That speech should not be allowed. It's inciting That's, violence. That is direct incitement. Correct. And are you with me on that one? Should that speech... Yeah, I agree. Okay. That I can if... see where you're going. Okay. That's why I hesitate. Yeah. So if a pamphlet <laughs> or a poster was prepared which said the same thing, hey, everybody, 12th of July, Cronulla Beach, 2pm, uh, rise up, white Australians, we're going to whack the Lebanese, um, join us down there, and um, we're going to create mayhem and somebody was plastering those sort of posters all over Sydney, should that form of speech be allowed or disallowed? Uh, so I, you're specifically saying that the poster is going to say we are going to go out and harm people? Yes. Basically. Yes. We're going to go down, and if we find any Lebanese, we're going to kick um, the shit out of them. Yeah. No, shouldn't be allowed. Okay. That's not speech exactly, though, is it? So, 12 men, you are okay with that poster? No. You're not? Okay. So, we ban that poster as well. I wouldn't. We, we are granting you, Trevor, an extremely wide berth yeah. with, with, this, with these examples hey, and these it. thought experiments. Just, so, just, please don't pounce. Just run up as longer than Jeff Thompson's. But, <laughs> but that's not free speech. That's publication. In any event... It's, we are saying that it should be prohibited on the basis of inciting violence. Inciting violence is an offence, isn't it? But, well, that's what I'm saying, mm. that it should be prohibited on the basis of inciting mm -hmm. violence, right? Okay. So, uh, if the poster said uh, all Jews should be killed, if you find them, kill them, should that poster be allowed to be planted all over Sydney? No, it shouldn't. 12th man? And if, I say that knowing exactly where you're going. Of course. You're so, going to quote the Quran in a minute. And if there's a book that within its passages says, all Jews should be killed if you find one, kill it. And the book is published today by a right-wing Nazi group and they start selling it in Dimmick's bookshop. Should that book be allowed with that passage in it? I think we, what we're talking about is a 
I'm trying to find the point where you say no. So just yeah, go with I, me with I the know. yeses. I, I think I, we, we've we've travelled the path with you and <laughs> and complied oh, with with your with, with your with your wishes. And now and now it's time to try. Now that. you're weaseling. But no, uh, no, 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 seriously, out of it. You are that book. Dimmick's bookshop. It says that should it be allowed? Okay. Well, first off. Does the Quran literally no. say that? Because no, I'm not no, no, familiar no, no, enough no, 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 to, no, no, to say whether, no, no. whether the Quran. No, 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 it, just, no I know. I, I, I agree that if a poster says blah, blah, no, it shouldn't be allowed. Yep. If a current book came out that said Jews should be killed, whatever, yes. it wouldn't be published. It, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Yeah. Okay. I would agree with that. So when it comes to the Quran. We're saying that it's okay because it's not a recent publication. Yeah, I, I'm that- saying there's nothing okay about the Quran, but there's nothing. Well, there are some things about, that are okay about the religious books, but there's yeah. nothing okay about the violence that's written. But there's just as much violence in the Bible, of course, as there is in the Quran. Yeah, I'm happy to and excise those bits from the Bible as well. Sure, and I think yes. Yes, you've got a, a point by the the comparison. There's a definite there's a definite point by which there's an equivalence there between the actual statements, but there's a difference in that something is a book that's written uh, fifteen hundred years ago and two thousand years ago that's become a part of the lexicon and has become a part of culture and it is universally accepted and is not interpreted. By modern people as meaning that you should go out and kill Jews. Well, it is by some. Necessarily. By some of them, yes, it is. But if you look at the Bible, and um, I don't think I could grant myself as being anywhere near enough of an expert on the Bible or the Quran to say that I understand how modern people interpret exactly the passages. But the Bible says we should dash babies' heads against the rocks and we should slaughter people and leave no one standing. But that's not how modern... Even uh, to kill disobedient children. To kill disobedient children. And all of those things are absolutely horrifying. But but that doesn't mean we should ban... The, I don't think you would... No. Well, you may think that we should ban the Bible as well. You can't... I don't want to ban. I don't want to ban the whole. We're book. really I'm, becoming like the Catholic Church. I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy just to, to um, re, you know, a, a black line, a black line through those sections. I'm happy no, for the rest it, of the book to be there. It's it's futile, Trevor, because it's it's out there. You can't unpublish it. You know, okay. you, you okay. can't unboil the egg. That's true. That, that is a point as well. Brussels. Teaching manuals in Gulf Arab finance mosques in Belgium promote anti-Semitic stereotypes of Jews and call for the persecution of homosexuals, according to a leaked Belgian intelligence report. So the sort of training manuals being distributed in Wahhabi-style mosques in Belgium calling for nasty things to be done to Jews and Christians. Those manuals... Should they be allowed to be produced and published? In what, Belgium? Mm. I would have thought Belgium would not allow them. Well, well but I'm asking you whether you think a, a, a modern-day manual that's being produced by Islamic groups calling for persecution of Jews, should, should a modern-day manual be allowed? No, I think that's that's... 
So really the crux is the historical uh, age of the Quran that gives it a free pass. No, I'm not saying... It, I don't think it has a free pass, but I don't think... I don't think you can take the Bible or the Quran as a whole document, right? It's different than a specific statement because it's a whole book. Because it's buried in there. It's buried in there. It's part of but, it's but the, part of the, the whole. The problem thing. with it is that uh, that could you different, imagine different clergy will will point to those sections of the Quran and highlight them and say to the followers, "Hey, guys." It's okay to persecute Jews. It says so right here in this section. Yeah, but then someone else will point to another statement and say that this statement overshadows the previous statement, and we've got the problem of the whole of a whole of religious uh, interpretation of the of religious texts, which tends to be biased in favour of trying to make them more relevant to the this day and age. So I think yes, you've got a good point. Those statements are hate speech. They do incite violence. I agree with all of that, but I just agree, disagree practically. If you were going to go to the effort of trying to get them banned, I just think it would be an exercise in futility because you would have every historian and every theologian saying all the different interpretations. It's it's a bit like trying to ban Mein Kampf or something like that. It's out there. They did ban it, didn't they? Wasn't it banned for uh, no, 30 years actually, or something like that? Well, I think it it's might still, have been still for banned in Germany. I, think. I don't think yeah, it is, actually. I thought it was at one point. I think they took it off being yes. banned. Yeah. I think it is available. Yeah, but, but I think but it was banned. If, if someone wants to be a, you know, be a Nazi, they're going to find a copy somewhere. You know, banning it just doesn't work. And, in fact, it gives, it, gives that, that text a little bit more cachet for those who see it as something attractive. And I think it's the same with the Quran. I think we should uh, disarm it by by um, dismantling it, by dismantling the the magical thinking that leads people to think there's something of value in it. You know. Mm. Well, isn't that interesting? So, on one level, I've argued for the signage to be left alone, and you guys have said no. You've got to start that's changing a, that. And yet, on another level, I've argued for a book to be. Uh, struck is, out, and you guys have said, no, you'll leave that alone. I just, isn't that interesting? Signage affects everybody, you know? Everybody who wanders through that neighbourhood is affected. <laughs> we're all affected by boys. Islam no, at the moment. Well, we're not. We're well, not. have you been through an airport security lately? Yeah. You've been affected by it then. So there you go. Yeah. So. In that sense. But that's, that's an effect of the whole phenomenon of this resurgence of interest in in religion and magical thinking mm. and that's what we have to fight against i think is mm. the is the thinking that enables this sort of text to to be popular mm. dear listener not too long ago you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the iron fist and velvet glove podcast was available to download did you silently think to yourself wait a new podcast I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au 
and click on the donations link. Um, our old friend Yasmin Abdelmajid apparently has been on the ABC with a program, uh, Hijabistas, which has been looking at women wearing the hijab. I haven't, I confess, I haven't watched the program, but I've been advised it sort of looks at the hijab and how women tend to, um, uh, you know, wear colourful hijabs and lots of makeup and really um, um, Just beautify, like beautify themselves um, with, the, with the way they wear their hijab. Mm. And I just got a message from one of our listeners alerting me to the program and she made the comment, uh, if I can find it here, what exactly is modest about dressing in such a way that everyone, man or woman, can't help but stare at you? <laughs> I thought it was a good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stop claiming to be modest if yes. you're going to dress yourself up in such a way that everybody mm. can't help but stare at you. you Not only that, but Jasmine, Jasmine sometimes shows up in quite tight pants doesn't she yes i i find i i find her i'm not sure what annoys me so much about her but i suspect it's the uh attention seeking mm. i don't think there's too much that's modest about her no, she doesn't get into america for for some because she doesn't have the right visa yes and it's an international incident she yes. claims it's probably claims it's racism it's it would be racism yeah. and unconscious bias upon yeah. the security yeah. officials that yeah Detected look, that. You know, it's, it's this thing about the hair, and it's ridiculous. It's absurd, you know, because as if the hair of a woman is going to excite the flames of passion of, of a man more than, you know, tight, you know, body-hugging clothing. Mm. It's kind of silly. It is. And yet they've got, they've got this fixation on just covering the hair. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite silly, though. It's, it's about inventing modern reasons to justify barbaric uh, practices, mm-hmm. preventing men from raping women by making them dress in... By making them cover their hair? Yeah. It's going to prevent mm-hmm. a lot of rape, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that evolved as a more, more um, reasonable version of wearing the entire full body cover. It's almost tokenism in a sense, isn't it, really? Because the original idea of it was to obviously make the woman less sexually attractive or, yes. or to, to signal that she's not sexually available. Mm-hmm. And now it's, it's boiled down to this, you know, condensed down to just covering the hair and mm-hmm. anything else is almost okay, isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Highlights the ridiculousness of it. So good comment by that listener, I thought. Mm-hmm. Good on you, Anonymous. Now, uh, there was another shooting in America uh, in a school. Uh, in 2018, it's been, um, there have been more deaths of school children at schools than US service members so far. Wow. Yes, quite incredible. More people have been killed at schools this year than have been killed while serving in the military. Amazing. So I've got a link to an article here that, has a graph that sort of shows the comparison and it says this year is a little bit unusual in a number of deaths at schools. But as part of doing that and just Googling around, I came across another article in Snopes. Are you guys aware of Snopes at all, Paul? Are you aware of Snopes? Fact-checking, isn't it? Yeah. So if you ever get an email or something that 
has a claim and you think, oh, I don't know if that's right, you go to Snopes, S-N-O-P-E-S dot com, and a lot of these sort of urban myths are examined as to whether they're real or not. And uh, it's a really good site. So, you know, people used to send stupid emails to me with an urban myth claim and I would respond with the link in Snopes, <laughs> which debunked it. And after a while I stopped getting those emails. I started losing friends. But, then... <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I recommend the site. Anyway, as part of it, I came across this um, claim. Here's the claim. Since 1968, more Americans have been killed by guns than have been killed in all wars in US history. Do you reckon that's true or oh, not? Oh, wow. That sounds... It sounds like it shouldn't be true. But I like suspect, stretched, doesn't But it? I suspect you're going to tell me that it's true. Yeah. And... Um, I think that's a bit bizarre. I've listened to some of the arguments on the gun laws and one of the arguments is that people killed by these shootings are such a minute, uh, they are so statistically unlikely that it's such, it's such a small problem in comparison to the total mortality rate or the total amount of people killed by murders or other forms that mm. it's that it's not uh that it's not something that should be legislated for but those those bits of evidence would suggest otherwise let, let me give you some figures yeah. so the claim is that since 1968 more americans killed by guns than have been killed in all wars in u.s history and the snape's conclusion is that that's mostly true Wow. So what they're saying is that in terms of people killed by firearms-related deaths, the figure is 1.58 million. That comes from Centre for Disease Control's web-based injury statistics query and reporting system. So that's where that's a government source for that figure. Now, that will include people who commit suicide, people who accidentally shoot themselves, um, hunting accidents, um, obviously gang killings and stuff like that, police shootings, you know, all firearm deaths in the US. And, of course, the US didn't lose a lot of people in the Great War. Well, here's the figures. They came in quite late, so they wouldn't have lost, wouldn't have lost anywhere as near as many as the British, the French, I'll the I'll tell Germans. you exactly how many. So, Because okay. they've totaled up the number of Americans killed in different wars. The American Revolutionary War, 4,500. The War of 1812. Wow, that's all. Yeah. The War of 1812, 2.2,200. Indian Wars, 1,000. Mexican-American War, 13,000. The Civil War, 750,000. Most of those died from disease, not, mm. not war wounds. Wow. Spanish-American War, 2,500. World War I, 116,000. World War II, 405,000. Korean War, 54,000. Vietnam War, 90,000. Desert Shield, Desert Storm, the first Gulf War, 2,000. Afghanistan Wars, uh, 1,600. Iraq War, 3,500. And that all totals up to slightly less than the 1.5 million killed by firearms. It's incredible. It is quite staggering, isn't it? Since 1968. So there you go. Mm. 
that was that figure. I had a um, one of our Patreons ask, how do you define success and what are your goals for the podcast? And I thought, well, that's probably a bit difficult to explain in a text. So I said, I'll answer it on the podcast. And uh, how do you define success and what are your goals for the podcast? Well, look, I would say the goals change over time. So as things grow, you... Um, change your goals and so I guess the first goal was initially just to get to 100 and just be persistent enough to actually do 100 in itself because I thought that was a reasonable goal to show commitment (laughs) so we got there at least and how do you define success Um, I'm enjoying it so and I'm learning a lot and I'm improving my skills at communicating and talking ideas. And even in my own sort of work life as a sales rep, selling stuff to people, I find my spiel is much improved from having just done all this talking on the podcast. And I'd like to think my dinner party conversation has improved because I can latch onto all sorts of different things. So as a sort of a self-improvement exercise it's been really good so i highly recommend a podcast to anybody if you've got an interest in a little strange topic it doesn't have to be politics it can be anything then um good good it's just a fun thing to do so getting back to the goals though i really want to win a podcast award next year (laughs) (laughs) and i just would like to the more people we can influence the better and I like the little community that we're building up so we do get sort of some toing and froing with different listeners who give their input and send links and I like our little sense of community that is developing with different things with different people so that's it off the top of my head sort of thing in terms of the podcast but it would be nice to have some genuine influence in affairs and yeah, that's a bit of a function of time, really, where, you know, we're doing this and we're not really promoting it. I really need to be contacting media organisations and and doing all that, but just don't have time. So it's uh, as time permits, more things will happen, I guess. There we go. So that's the answer to that one. Got a message from a listener regarding last week's podcast, 12th Man, and... Because we got onto Karl Marx, and I came out with some quite Hugh. If you want to disagree with me, you, you really probably will hear. You really need to listen to episode one hundred and forty-seven because okay. I was um, I was basically waxing on about how Karl Marx was pretty right about capitalism. There you go. Okay. So listen to that one. And anyway, from this particular listener who wrote, your most recent episode is the most harebrained left-wing pinko episode I've listened to yet. <laughs> So mad, I'm going to have to write an email response an email response outlining all of the nonsense, but very entertaining. That was the comment. So that's good. Oh, it's good. It provoked and entertained, and, um, and hopefully my son will write that email shortly, and <laughs> I'll get to talk to him about it, because that's who it's come from. Mm. Briefly, Thank you to the patrons. I'm going to list them from when they first signed up as a patron to the most recent. Thank you, Sean, Alex, Janelle, Craig, John, Jason, Grant, Wayno, Ayane, Brett, Anonymous, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Craig, Jimmy, 
James, Jimmy Spud and Kane. Thanks, guys, for your support. It is much appreciated. And this is a Trevor Was Right segment just now, Twelfth Man, because last week when we were talking about capitalism and workers' rights and all sorts of stuff, and we talked about Henry Ford and the car factory, and you and Scott argued that he increased wages for his employees so that they would be able to afford to buy motor cars from his factory. was pretty much what you said. And I said, it's, surely it's not. Myth. And I had no reason to doubt it, but yeah. yes, you I said, right. surely it not. Surely he just paid them because he had to, because mm. in those days labour was in demand and he needed to pay a higher amount to get people to work for him. And I've got a link to an article, dear listener, and I'll just quote from it. There's an argument you see around sometimes about Henry Ford's decision to pay his workers those famed $5 a day wages. Uh, It was that he realised he should pay his workers sufficiently large sums so that they could afford the products they were making. In this manner, he could expand the market for his products. Uh, Actually, it was the turnover of his staff. At the time, workers could count on about $2.25 per day, for which they worked nine-hour shifts. It was pretty good money in those days, but the toll was too much for many to bear. Ford's turnover rate was very high. In 1913, Ford hired more than 52,000 men to keep a workforce of only 14,000. New workers required a costly break-in period, making matters worse for the company. It goes on, basically, he paid them that because he had to. But... One extra bit on this, if you were thinking that Ford was a good guy. The $5 a day rate was about half pay and half bonus. The bonus came with character requirements and was enforced by the socialisation organisation. This was a committee that would visit the employees' homes to ensure they were doing things the American way. They were supposed to avoid social ills such as gambling and drinking. Hugh? <laughs> they were to learn English, Paul, and many, <laughs> primarily the recent immigrants, had to attend classes to become Americanized. Women were not eligible for the bonus unless they were single and supporting the family. Also, men were not eligible if their wives worked outside the home. There you go. Back in the days of Henry Ford. Very yeah, I found that very interesting, and I thank you, Trevor, for sharing that with us all. Very good. So there we go, dear listener. That's, uh, that's going to wrap us up for an episode, Hugh. Um, thanks for coming along. Thanks for putting the kids to bed and <laughs> making your way across the western <laughs> suburbs to the studio here. And hope we can drag you away in the future as well. Because we've got a spare microphone. We could have the velvet glove and you could be here for with the four of us. That would be great. I'd be more than happy to. And hopefully we'll, we'll find some more stuff to agree on next time. Uh, or disagree on. And if you if you check out last week's episode with Karl Marx, I, I feel we'll have plenty to disagree about. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> I, didn't believe I, every, so. I didn't believe everything I said, but I was just putting it out there for an exchange of ideas. So... You yeah, can, you can test the connection me with marks for you. Well, Trevor knows that I'm probably middle. I uh, I, I am capable of voting conservative. I'm capable mm-hmm. of voting for the coalition. I do believe that um, you, you, we, we're not going back to socialism. We're not going back to communism. I think Marx had great ideas, um, well expressed, and some of them amazing. 
but you have a look at you have a look at the ideas of Noam Chomsky and the the nightmare that that they're inflicting on. I think it's Venezuela. Uh, it's just a nightmare. I think there is something to be said about capitalism that actually works. And I think Stephen Pinker's arguments on that are pretty persuasive. Communism hasn't worked. Mm. We're not going back there. However, someone may reinvent the ideas of Marx, which you know seem pretty good on their or just on their own basis. Um, it was, to, it was more work. that Marx predicted the the ultimate problem with capitalism and how it led to the powerful becoming even more powerful and the inequality that we're seeing today was it was quite prescient in his in his recognition I, I think, of how the powers worked and the result that would come about yeah i think that is prescient and perhaps i'm just being disagreeable by saying this but mm. he didn't predict what mm. would happen when his system was and the powerful became so narrowly focused in one person or just a party that it caused such a problem Mm. That was the the only problem with his philosophy is that his solution didn't work. Yeah. And, and wouldn't it be interesting if we could go back in time and just play a, like a, a movie reel of the history of the Soviet Union of communist China under Mao for mm. Mr. Marx and just get to his, see what he his reaction. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Hugh, can I just check what sort of humanist you are? So Probably not be, a very good one. Be one of these three, perhaps, okay. or you might be a, a different category altogether. So there's the liberal humanism, okay? Uh, humanity is individualistic and resides within each individual. The supreme commandment is to protect the inner core and freedom of each individual. So that's, that's, that's a liberal humanism. Okay. Then there's a socialist humanism, which is... Humanity is collective and resides within the species Homo sapiens as a whole. The supreme commandment is to protect equality within the species. So that's socialist humanism. And then the third one is evolutionary humanism. Humanity is a mutable species. Humans might degenerate into subhumans or evolve into superhumans. The supreme commandment is to protect humankind from degenerating into subhumans and to encourage its evolution into superhumans. Okay. Do you fit any of those? I, I, I have a strong sus- suspicion you may be reading from uh, <laughs> Sapiens, <laughs> the book by <laughs> Yuval Noah Harari. And I think what he's doing is imposing a bit of a Malcolm Gladwell-style analysis which 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 is the uh, is the type of thing which simplifies something that's very very complex into a series of slogans and then you're supposed to pick one as if one is right whereas none of them I don't think any of them are right particularly not the last one which was such a lot of gobbledygook I couldn't even understand it oh, it's superhuman and subhuman and all that business I, yeah I don't I don't uh, I, I can't relate to any of those and I don't see why we have to the assumption appears to be that we have to we have to agree with some sort of supreme well, commandment. No, I, 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 I would have thought I started that that's off, what we, we I, want to avoid hang altogether. On, hang on. I started off by saying <laughs> here's three categories, which one are you or you might be a fourth or fifth. Like, yeah, true. Well, so, yeah, I'm not criticizing you. I'm yeah, sort of I'm okay. sort of saying that perhaps these All right, so none of the above is your answer. Yeah. Would okay. you say you 
for long term. I, I think I'm. I think I'm in the third category. Actually, mm-hmm. yeah. Maybe read that one again. Perhaps okay. I didn't take it in properly. Humanity is a mutable species. Humans might degenerate into subhumans or evolve into superhumans. The supreme commandment is to protect humankind from degenerating into subhumans and to encourage its evolution into superhumans. Yeah, I guess my issue with that, and that reminds me of discussion we had about philosophy and about what's, how you determine what's good, mm. and we discussed it and you felt there was an intrinsic thing where, we, where it's a moral, moral sort of um, assumption that we have to protect our own people and our own species. Yes. I don't agree. I don't agree that that's mm. necessarily a moral thing. I don't sort of... Okay, so he starts... Here's his opening paragraph to all this is, Homo sapiens has a unique and sacred nature that is fundamentally different from the nature of all other beings and phenomena. The supreme good is the good of humanity. So you just disagree with that? I think so, that's so something... Not, I think we've, we've evolved beyond... We can see yeah. our relationship with other mm. primates. We can mm. see how our moral, morality is quite similar to the morality of um, chimpanzee tribes and things like that. We can see... We can see how it's evolved out of it. So I don't, I don't, I really always are very suspicious. So many writers and so many pundits seem to want to suggest there's something so very special about us that's totally, and I think that's almost a religious type conviction, Mm -hmm. which is got to be false. It's not, it can't be by definition because we've evolved from the same, the same um, precursors as all other species have. Mm. Our genes contain the same um, material. I don't mm. think that can be true. I think it can only be true to say that we've evolved so far beyond other animals, but even that seems like the height of hubris to, but, to think that. But couldn't you say other species are clearly designed to have their genetic code live on and passed on to future generations? That's what they're on about. Designed, yes, they're not designed, but yes, that but but that appears to be how evolution works. So, wouldn't we just be the same? Wouldn't wouldn't that mean that when our drive is to pass on our genetic code as best we can? Yeah, I agree to, with that. and have that continue yeah, on. I would agree with that, but I don't think that means that we mm. want to do anything special for the rest of our species. I think most of human history has shown that we're we're really only concerned with our own particular little tribe, mm. and uh, the rest of them. Our fodder for the cannons. Mm. True. Agree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I think it's hard to say. Hugh, you need to get back home. Otherwise, I'm going to be in big trouble with your wife, <laughs> who I've never met. Are. She's going to, when I eventually needed her, she's just going to look at me and go, you <laughs> bastard. <laughs> She'll say it nicely, though. Yeah, she will, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. Thank you, 12th Man, once again. Always a pleasure. We'll be back next week. Bye, everyone. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. 
So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just It'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event... You can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation, so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.